All right, well, we'll go ahead and uh, get started. There should be, should be a latest handout here in the back if you haven't picked it up already. We're going to start on page 86, but there's a new handout in the back that starts on page 87. That would be the latest one. Good to see everybody here. So next week we're off, right? That's what I've been told. I think there's a break next week, and then we'll be back in two weeks. So uh, tonight we'll introduce the Olivet Discourse. We'll, I think we likely will get through most of the first chapter, and then when we come back in two weeks, we'll be looking at chapter 25. Everybody find the notes okay? All right, well, let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. And then we'll dive in. Father, I'm thankful to, to be here tonight. I'm grateful that uh, you've spoken to us and that it's living and active. I'm thankful that um, words that were written uh, over 2,000 years ago still have the power uh, to change our lives. Uh, tonight, as we especially think about one of Jesus' sermons, I pray that the words of your Son would penetrate our hearts and make us more like Him. And we just ask for your work of the Spirit so that we listen carefully and obey. And we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so at the top of page 86, we're on Roman numeral 11. We're talking about the Olivet Discourse. It starts in chapter 24. This is going to be the fifth and final of Jesus' discourses that feature prominently in the Gospel of Matthew. So just thinking about the questions that Jesus has already answered, they all have something to do with the kingdom. The first one was in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, what does repentance look like? So the repentance that's required of everyone who will enter into Jesus' kingdom, what would that actually look like? What was the fruit? That was the Sermon on the Mount. Then he gave one in chapter 10 on the mission of his followers. He, he starts out with his own 12 apostles that he's sending out. And you realize that they are going to go through many difficult experiences while they wait for the mission to be completed. And about halfway through that discourse, roughly, you realize that he's not just talking to them but he's talking to them as representatives of all of us. All right, so what, what would the mission look like of spreading the good news about the kingdom while we wait for Jesus' to return? And then the middle one, the, parable of the uh, parables of the kingdom, what happens now really describes the in-between time that we live in, the reaction, responses to the kingdom. Chapter 18 was the life of kingdom citizens as we live together in this new community that we call the church. And then finally, when will the kingdom actually arrive? When is this meantime that I keep referring to? When does it come to an end? When do we go from this age to the age to come? You know, when will uh, the wicked and the righteous be separate? When will Jesus come in power to establish his kingdom? That's, that's the answer 
or that Jesus is going to give in this discourse, all right? So I, if I just summed up the main point, all right, instead of a saving it to the end, I'll just do a spoiler alert and I'll give it to you from the get-go. This is what I think Jesus is trying to say in the discourse. So the predicted end of the age will appear suddenly and without warning after a long, difficult wait. So my disciples should be busy serving and eagerly anticipating my return, all right? If I thought harder, I probably could try to boil that down into something a little bit simpler, because that's kind of a long sentence. But I think that captures uh, what Jesus is talking about. There's an end of the age coming, and when it comes, it'll appear suddenly, without warning, just like a thief, but you're going to have to wait for a very long time, and there are going to be difficult times, and while you're waiting, you need to be busy like servants, like slaves. That's going to be the parables that he talks about in chapter 25. All right? So we'll kind of tackle this discourse in a similar way that we've tackled the other. And let's first talk about the setting or the occasion when Jesus gives it. So remember, he's just left the temple in verse 1. He's leaving the temple after previously in chapter 23 where we left off last week, he just had denounced the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Remember preaching openly in the temple court in front of the huge crowds that would have gathered for the Passover. Uh, he was very clear that this evil family of, of his fellow Israelites who were unbelieving would be held accountable for all the righteous blood that had been shed. He's at least hinted at the fact that their city and even their temple would be destroyed. But now he's going to say it explicitly. So as they leave the building, uh, his disciples, you know, you can imagine they're walking east out of the city. You know, so the temple's behind them. They're walking up on the Mount of Olives. As they look back at it with the setting sun behind it, it would have been beautiful. You know, the, the temple complex had was just about finished. I mean, it actually isn't truly finished until a few years before it's destroyed. The temple itself had been finished, but you remember the temple building is just one piece of this whole giant complex that Herod the Great had built. I have that little quote there in the notes from Josephus where he talks about how beautiful it was. You know, it has these white stones that in the sun they would have shown, like he says, a mountain covered with snow, all covered with gold. Uh, when the sun hit it just right, it would have been hard to even look at the, the glory of it, the splendor of it. And you can imagine the disciples you know, pointing to it and let's just say, Jesus, you know, look at this building, how magnificent it is. And he says here, do you see all these things in verse 2? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another, every one will be thrown down. And his prediction there in verse 2, it prompts the disciples, as they're walking up the Mount of Olives, to ask a two-part question of Jesus. So a simple way to think about the discourse that follows is that Jesus is answering these two questions. He actually answers the second one first, and then he returns to the first one and answers it secondly. Some people have suggested that there's actually three questions. So the way they would break it up would be, number one, when will this happen? Number two, what would be the sign of your coming? And number three, what would be the sign 
of the end of the age. But as I show you there in the notes, I think the second half there is just a two-part question that comes together as a package. So it's basically a when question and a what question. So the coming and the end of the age, they believe will occur together as a package. And I don't think Jesus does anything to correct their thinking. I think they are right about that. So I say there in the notes, why would they think of that as a package? Why would they think of the Messiah's coming to Jerusalem, his return, and the end of the age as happening together? And what specifically would have provoked that question after Jesus had just made a prediction about the temple's destruction? And I think in part, they're probably thinking of one of the passages that we looked at a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Mount of Olives. Remember the passage in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 3? that someday there would be a coming time of distress for the people of Israel. Their city would be under attack, parts of it actually destroyed, and then the Messiah, the Lord, would come and he would fight for them, and his feet would land on the Mount of Olives, and it would split into two pieces. I think that is likely one of the passages that they're thinking of. So a prediction, I say there at the bottom of the notes, of the temple's destruction would have brought to mind the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. Might not make that connection in our mind, but I think it would have in their mind. They hear this temple isn't good enough. This temple is being condemned. This temple needs to be destroyed. They would have thought, well, that means Jesus is talking about the new temple that he will build. So the Messiah was always associated with being a temple builder, someone who would purify and refine the temple. So they're getting excited, right? If this one's going to get destroyed, that must mean that you're going to make something even better. When will that happen? That's, that's basically what they're asking. All right? But when they ask, point three at the top of the next page, why do they use the expression end of the age? Okay? Why end of the age? I think like other features of this discourse, the expression's drawn from the book of Daniel. I think sometimes when people hear end of the age or just the expression the end, they're thinking like end of history, as in like the timeline of history just goes along and all of a sudden there's a great big stop, the end, and then there's just something kind of fuzzy and non-historic on the other side. That's not what the disciples mean by the phrase. They mean the end of this age so that another age can begin. So history will continue, it will continue on into eternity, into a new heavens and a new earth, but there will still be something here. There will be something that's lived in, something that can be seen and touched. I think the other mistake, I think sometimes it's viewed as a screeching halt. Right? So as in like the end comes and it just comes with a bang and then that's it, we're in the new age. But I think the end is actually a complex of events. So not only is there something on the other side of it, but the thing that closes this age will develop over a period of time. So don't think the end is like one little dot on a timeline. Think of the end as something that extends over multiple years, like a military command. Essentially, I'm arguing that the end is equivalent to the day of the Lord, the expression that we looked at earlier in the class, the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns to wage a campaign to take back his rightful rule of this world from the usurper Satan and from the evil kingdoms of this world, 
he will fight back, take what's rightfully his, and establish a kingdom that will last forever. All right? So one of the places that we can see this is in Daniel chapter 9. So this is a fairly familiar prophecy. This is the prophecy of 70 weeks or 70 sets of seven. Uh, the prophecy said that someday the, the temple would be destroyed. Uh, there would be this individual, this, this king, who would sign a covenant that would last for one of seven or one seven-year period. Uh, but in the middle of it, he would do something to uh, cause a sacrilege or a desecration in the temple. It says there he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So notice in that, just that one little prophecy in two verses in our Bible, that expression, the end, occurs three times. Another place you could go to that I have there in the notes is the end of Daniel chapter 11 into Daniel chapter 12. That same expression, the end, is referring to the end of the age. That's what Jesus is thinking of, or that's what his disciples are thinking of. And it's synonymous with all of the expressions that we looked at earlier about the day of the Lord. Now this, yes, ma'am. Well, yeah, I think you're on to something. So, you know, they're not thinking when Jesus talks about going away and when they ask about his return or his coming back, you know, they have no idea, I don't think, that it's going to be at least 2,000 years later from our perspective. And, of course, we have no idea if it's going to be another 2,000 years more, right? Uh, there's no way of knowing because, as we're going to see when we get to the end of this chapter, Jesus says he doesn't even know. Only the Father in heaven knows. So I think you're right. I think they're thinking probably a relatively short time. So if they finally grasped what Jesus is saying, he keeps saying to them he's going to go up to Jerusalem, he's going to die, and then on the third day he's going to be raised. So they know there's at least some kind of delay. Now he's telling them that this temple they're seeing isn't the final temple. This one's going to be destroyed. And so then they're thinking, okay, well, that means that he's going to have to make another one. And I think they would have thought, well, that's okay. He can do that. But they're still not thinking that all of this is going to be fulfilled and finished far out into the future, if that makes sense. I think they're thinking this is all going to be wrapped up in a relatively short time. And one of the main points that Jesus is making in the, his sermon here is you need to be prepared for a long time. And specifically, that's the parable of the, the ten virgins or the bridegrooms. Remember, the, the foolish virgin is the one who doesn't bring enough oil because she thinks everything's going to wrap up quickly. She's not ready for a very long time. And uh, that's what Jesus is is trying to get them to understand. Does that answer your question? Yeah. All right. So that's, that's what frames the question. Uh, that's what I think provokes the disciples to ask. So then the next question is, how does Jesus answer these questions? So that brings us to letter B there, the structure of the sermon. So I think Jesus answers both questions. That's actually a little controversial. Sometimes 
People will say that he kind of ignores one question and only answers one of them. Some people think he answers the first one first, and then he answers the second one. I'm arguing that he answers both, but he answers them in reverse order, okay? So that's what I'm up to. So in verses 4 through 31, Jesus answers the second question regarding signs. So basically, Jesus' return to the Mount of Olives will be the sign. He's going to call it the sign of the Son of Man. So when you see him descending to the Mount of Olives with power and great glory, accompanied by his angelic army, you will know that you have reached the end. I mean, that is the ultimate sign. He's going to give some other signs that lead up to that, but that's going to be the, the chief sign. Okay? It will be obvious for all to see. But leading up to that return, Jesus' followers will see and hear many things. Some will be false alarms, but eventually some will be genuine signs of the end. The section on signs concludes with the fig tree parable, which draws a conclusion from the many things that will be seen. Okay, and We'll put this up on the screen in a little bit, and hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense. But I'm arguing in that first section, verses 4 through 31, it's all about things that you see, all about things that you experience. And so it's the answer to the sign question. And then in verse 36, there's a switch. Jesus switches to a different but related topic. He's going to use the little phrase, but about that day and hour. It's a little bit obscured in our translations, but we, we know a similar phrase from 1 Corinthians, where Paul keeps saying, now concerning. So you, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul evidently has gotten some questions from the Corinthians about things that they're supposed to be doing. And kind of like bullet points, he just keeps going from one question to the next. So now concerning food offered to idols, now concerning marriage, you know, et cetera, now concerning this. That little phrase, now concerning, is his way of indicating, I'm going to a new topic and I'm going to address that. Jesus uses that same phrase in verse 36. And that's the best indication that he's switched to a topic. But the other way we can just see it is that he starts talking about something different. He starts talking about time. And he's, asked, he's answering the when question. All right? So on page 88, for all the, the visual, visual learners out there, and by now you've probably figured out I'm a visual learner. Like I like pictures and graphs, and I really like colors, right? So up here on the screen, I've tried to visualize what the answer to these questions look like. So the first question is in green. It's a when question, and Jesus saves it for last. And so the, the answer to it is also in green. That's going to come in verse 36 and following, okay? You notice it's a when question, and his answer to it is basically no one knows, right? We'll have to save that for maybe next week and talk about that, but that's there's a lot to think about just right there, why Jesus can say that. The second question, the one in blue, is a, what will be the sign question, right? You know, how will we know that the end has actually arrived? Or if I could paraphrase it, what will the end, when it gets here, what will it look like? And Jesus is going to give them first a series of false alarms, and then he's going to give them a series of genuine signs. And the sign, the ultimate sign, will be the sign of the, the coming of the Son of Man, okay? So another way to look at it is look at the chart there on page 88 in your notes. So in the first column over on the left, 
I give you the, the first question, the when question, and then I show you just little snippets of how Jesus answers that. So what's the answer to the when question? First of all, it's nobody knows except the Father. And then he's going to say in verse 42, you do not know what day your Lord will come. Notice how he starts referring to it as the day. It's, it's the day of the Lord. Verse 44, the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you are not expecting. Verse 48, it's going to be a long time. Verse 50, it's when you don't expect. Verse 5 of chapter 25, it's a long time. Verse 13, it's an hour that you do not know. Verse 19, it's again a long time. And then finally he gets to the, the climax. And in verse 31, it's when he finally comes. And then it concludes with a description of his arrival and his judgment. And then compare that to the other column. These are all the answers to the what will be the sign question. And it's all about things that you see. First of all, it's going to be about some false signs. Then it's going to be about some genuine signs. And then it's going to conclude in verse 30 with seeing the appearance of the sign of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All right, so that just kind of gives us a roadmap of where we're going. And then we'll just kind of walk through the sermon and look a little bit more carefully at some of the things that Jesus tells us. But any questions there about how Jesus answers their questions? Questions about questions. Yes. You don't have to show the thing, but I know that that you know, picture of the temple complex. Yeah, I can go back. Taken from the east because you see the front door. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a little bit to the south, southeast. But in, but anyway, the thing is, is the Wailing Wall is that the near, far, left, or right? Yeah, as I understand it, the Wailing Wall is the western wall. So it would be, oh, so the, it would be the far wall. Yeah, it would be the kind of the southwestern corner of what we can't see on the other side. Okay. So the original mountain that David built on was relatively small, and it was just the temple building itself, the thing in the middle that's kind of T-shaped. But Herod, as part of his grandiose plan for building, he filled in with dirt and then built these giant retaining walls so that he could make this large tabletop or plateau that he could build on it. And he made this massive courtyard where the people can meet so that the thing with the roof over it to the left is, is Solomon's porch. That's where the early church will meet in the book of Acts. Um, yeah, so the retaining wall is what's left, and it's on the southwest side, I believe, and that's uh, what's today called the Wailing Wall. So it's not a wall of the temple building itself. It's a wall from this retaining structure that held up this plateau. Yep. It's a massive building and just one of many things that Herod tried to do in order to ingratiate himself with the, the people of Israel. All right. So let's talk a little bit here now on page 89 about what Jesus actually says in his sermon. All right. I, I forgot. I do quickly on page 89. This is probably valuable. We'll just go through this quickly. Just three basic ways of interpreting the sermon. So three ways that people understand Jesus' words. 
So the first option, you have some scholars uh, who argue that most of what Jesus is talking about already occurred. So sometimes this is called the preterite position from the Latin word that means past. So they think all of Jesus' predictions from our perspective are already past. So from his perspective, they were still future, but past from our perspective because they think that most of them already took place when the Roman armies destroyed uh, Jerusalem during the Jewish war, you know, culminating with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Okay? It's, it's, it's a fairly common position. Number two, there's some people that kind of take a both-and approach. So they also put a lot of emphasis on AD 70, but they still think that there's some aspects of the sermon that refer to Jesus' future return. All right? And you could kind of subdivide them into two groups. Some of them think there's real clear distinction between past and future in the discourse. Some of them just think they kind of blend together, and you can't really tell when Jesus is talking about one or the other, and maybe sometimes he's talking about both at the same time. The third position, which, like all good teachers, right, that's going to be my position because I put it last, is that it's mostly about the future. So I'm going to argue that there may be a hint here about AD 70 or the coming war with Rome, but that's definitely not Jesus' main focus. I think Jesus is looking past that to the future day of the Lord. And whatever relationship that AD 70 has to the end, AD 70 was just maybe a foreshadowing or a pointer, but it's not really Jesus' main focus in the, in the discourse. Well, you might ask, well, how do people arrive at three big separate positions on the discourse? So we're talking about you know, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who study this diligently, how do they come up with three different positions? And it's because there's two things really in the discourse that are kind of hard to identify. And really, uh, the interpretations hinge on how you answer the question, what are these two things? And they're both close together in verses 15 through 29. So I'll just read a little bit of that. So Jesus is going to say, starting in verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, so some kind of sacrilege that makes the temple unusable. So it's a, a de, an abomination would be something detestable or sacrilegious that makes it desolate, that causes the temple to be unusable. When you see that, the one spoken of through the prophet Daniel, okay, so that's verse 15. So the first question is, what is that abomination? The second question has to do with this time of distress that Jesus refers to twice. So after the prediction in verse 15, if you remember, he's going to tell people, hey, when you see that, you need to flee. You know, don't, if you're on the rooftop of your flat home, don't even take the time to go in and grab your stuff. Just, just skedaddle. <laughs> just get out because it's going to be dangerous. And then in verse 21, he gives his reason. He says, for then... There will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And then in verse 29, he says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Okay? So picking up there in that last paragraph on page 89, 
So view number one, the one that thinks we're mostly talking about things that are past, it would say that the abomination that causes desolation is something that happened around AD 70 with the Jewish war, and there's lots of different options. And then they would say the distress is the Jewish war itself, and then most of them would say, and it's also all of the tribulation and distress that Christians go through between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. So rather than seeing it as a short little piece of time, they see it as a long period of time that stretches all the way until Jesus comes back. Okay? View, view three, the one that I'm arguing for, sees the abomination that causes desolation as that specific prophecy that we showed earlier from Daniel chapter 9 that there'll be a specific man, he's called by John, the Antichrist, who will set himself up as a false messiah, probably because he is Jewish himself. He will um, fool many of the Jewish people into thinking that he is their protector, but then he will actually turn on them. The prophet Zechariah describes him as a false shepherd who turns on his sheep, and then he will actually be destroyed by the coming of our Lord Jesus. So he's the abomination. He's the one that makes the temple desolate. And it's that final period of the day of the Lord, that final seven week period, or final seven year period, I should say, that Jesus is referring to as this final distress. All right. So I'll try to give you my arguments for that as we work our way through the sermon. So we'll put here an outline up on the screen so we can follow along. And we're picking up at the top of page 90. So the first thing that Jesus does in verses 4 through 5 is he just gives a general warning. He knows his disciples are going to be very eager to see him return. Aren't we eager to see him return, right? We want to see him returned. We want to see this world made right. But when people are really eager for something to happen, sometimes their eagerness and their excitement can cloud their judgment. So Jesus warns us from the very get-go in the sermon, hey, don't be fooled. There are going to be many false messiahs that show up. There'll be people who actually claim to be him, or they'll just claim to be another messiah, and they'll try to gather a following. But he's warned us ahead of time that they're out there. So that's just kind of the general warning that he gives in verses 4 through 5. Then in verses 6 through 8, he starts talking about general things that they'll see, but they won't be signs of the end. So notice, I'll pick up and start reading in verse 6. He says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. You hear that? So you're going to hear about wars, but don't be concerned about those and don't think those are the end. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. It's a pretty common occurrence in our Christian life to meet a fellow brother and sister in Christ who's very excited about Jesus' return, and they'll point to something that they've recently seen in the news or recently heard about, and they'll say, this is it, right? This is a sign that the end is here or it's just right around the corner. 
And we have to, I think, in those situations, lovingly and patiently point them to Jesus' words and say, no, Jesus said these things will always happen. They'll keep happening. There'll be wars, either wars you experience or wars that you'll hear about. There'll be famines. There'll be earthquakes. There'll be natural disasters. Bad things will happen in this world, but that isn't the end. The end is still to come. He says in verse 8 that these are just the beginning of birth pains, all right? So they're, they're false labor pains, or in our modern terms, they're Braxton Hicks contractions. So I've never had them myself, but I'm told they're, they're painful, right? So you don't want to minimize the pain. I mean, Jesus is saying these are truly painful things that you will experience, and you would only have these if a child was coming, right? So they're not completely detached from the end, right? So they are, in a sense, an indicator that the end will someday come, but they aren't the end itself, and they're also just a preview of something worse that's occurring, right? There's going to be an intensification. There's going to be an escalation. So I think he takes this, this everyday experience that people are familiar with, right, in their world, that we're still familiar with in our world. You know, how often does someone get rushed to the hospital, right? especially with their first child, because they think this is it, right? The baby's on the way. And then what happens? They turn, you know, they turn you away. They tell you to go home, right? Uh, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. And then, you, you know, it might be hours. It might be days. It might be weeks. Eventually, Lord willing, the child still comes. But there was a false alarm, right? There was a false alarm. That's what Jesus is warning us about, that there will be many false alarms in this age but they aren't actually an indication that the end is here. Not only will be there false alarms in general, but there'll be specific ones for us as Christians. So the little chunks of the discourse, uh, they're not real controversial. They're pretty easy to identify the paragraphs. So I think everyone agrees where the paragraph break should be. It's just that people disagree on what the paragraphs mean. So I think everyone recognizes that in verse 9, there's a break that goes till verse 14. Jesus is switched to another but closely related subject. He says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. So I think he moves from just general signs that all people will see to specific things related to his followers. This is, he's saying to us, this is the world that you will live in. This is what it will look like for you to wait for me to come. You'll be hated. You'll be persecuted. Uh, people will turn against you. You'll have false prophets who will appear. Wickedness will increase. The love of most will grow cold. So I wonder there if he's specifically thinking of you know, professing Christianity will grow cold in its love. But there he promises in verse 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So you notice they're not in the end, but they're, they're told that they have to stand firm or they have to persevere to the end, and then they'll be saved. And during this time that we live in, this gospel, the good news about the kingdom, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then what's it say at the end of verse 14? Then the end will come. So now we've finally reached the end and he's going to start describing genuine signs. So what will the end actually look like? Well, the first thing that people will see when the end actually comes 
as they'll see this verse 15, this description of this abomination that causes desolation. So I pick up there at the bottom of page 90. I think Jesus is describing a thing or a person who will desecrate the temple so that it cannot be appropriately used. A similar phrase occurs in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and that very exact phrase appears in Daniel chapter 12, 11. So in chapter 12, 11, and in chapter 9, the phrase describes the actions of the eschatological Antichrist, who will defile the Jewish temple, and he'll persecute the people of God. So it's an interesting thing that happens in the end of Daniel. Are you familiar with this? Daniel chapter 11, he receives this prophecy of, of the coming uh, Greek kings. It's given with such detail and precision that critical scholars say, well, it, it had to have been written after those kings lived, right? It had to have been written far out into the future, right? Daniel couldn't have wrote, wrote that. Well, we would say no, that the true God spoke to Daniel. He was a genuine prophet, and God knows the future. So we shouldn't be surprised that he predicted. But as he goes through those Greek kings, you get to one especially despicable character, Antiochus IV, who was a persecutor of the Jewish people, who actually did a sacrilegious, defiling thing in their temple. And he serves as a kind of a preview of the coming Antichrist. So right there in the middle of him being described in verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11. So Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, the scene suddenly shifts, and we skip over time. We go right from Antiochus IV to Antichrist. And both of them do a desolating thing in the temple. Uh, but the, the one on the, you know, the, the further one away, the one that Antichrist actually commits, will lead directly to the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. That's why I say there in point A that this is a really appropriate sign for Jesus to point to. Because already in the book of Daniel, they were told that when this happened, it would lead to a time of great distress, but it would be the final time of great distress. You see why that would be comforting to God's people? That someday in the future, they'll see this man arise, and when they see him arise, they'll know that he's going to have a time where he will be allowed to persecute them, and it will be the worst time that they've ever experienced, but it will be a short time. It will only last for a few years, and then when it comes to an end, it will come to the end with the arrival of, of Jesus himself. So this is just one, one way that we can look at Jesus' words here in Matthew 24, and put them side by side with what Daniel says. And I think it's pretty clear that they're talking about the same time period. So on the top of this slide, we've got Matthew 24. Jesus says, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. In Daniel's prophecy, he put it this way, At that time Michael, remember the archangel, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. And you can check this out later. I don't want to turn this into a class on Daniel, right? But if you go and look at the end of Daniel, 
Daniel's actually going to start asking questions about when this takes place, and God's going to say to him, Daniel, you basically just have to seal up this prophecy and wait, and you're going to wait until the resurrection. But then he does give a time frame. It's roughly that same three-and-a-half-year period that keeps getting referred to in, earlier in the book of Daniel and then is picked up in the book of Revelation. So it was a sign that when you saw it come, you could attach a time period to it, three-and-a-half years from the time that this desolation takes place until the coming of Jesus. That's why it's such an appropriate sign for Jesus to point to. Okay? We'll stop there for a second and... See if there's any questions, and then we'll go a little bit further. Chance to drink some coffee here for a minute. All right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he seems to be addressing people who will actually see it. So you look at verse 15, so when you see standing, and then in verse 16 and 17, you know, in verse 18, he has these instructions about, you know, flee quickly, don't go back in your house. So he does seem to be addressing people who someday will be living within this time period. Mm-hmm. You could. I mean, that, that is where a lot of people would go with it. But um, if you're like myself and you, you kind of hold to a, or you do hold to a pre-trib rapture, I think the explanation is that there will be new converts during that time period, especially Jewish converts. And so here Jesus is specifically addressing them. Mm-hmm. All right. So there we got another one of these paragraphs that everyone recognizes. Uh, Down in verses 23 through 28, um, I think the only debate, so in our NIV as we follow along, verse 22, that could go with the paragraph before it or after. They put it with the paragraph after, right? So they put a paragraph break at verse 22. You notice what Jesus says there in verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, No one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So what's Jesus saying there? He's saying this time that's going to happen in the future will be so severe, the persecution will be so terrible, that if he hadn't limited it to a very short period of time, nobody would survive. So for the sake of believers, so this would be another passage where I think there's some believers, the elect, he shortened the time. You remember earlier when I was talking about the three different views And I said that view number one believes that this tribulation or the distress that Jesus is talking about has to stretch all the way from the first coming to the second coming. The reason they have to do that is because if you look at verse 29, it says that Jesus returns immediately after the distress of those days. So do you you see the tension? If Jesus' coming is way out in the future and the distress happens immediately after those days, And if you think the day started in AD 70, well, then you've got a really long period of time that's the tribulation, right? But my response to that is it can't be a long period of time because Jesus says he cut it short in order to preserve the life of people. 
So that means that the shortened period would have to be less than the time a person normally lives, right? I mean, how does that mean anything? If it stretches over thousands of years, what would that mean for God to have cut it short in order to preserve the life of people, right? That only has meaning, in my mind, if he's made it a few years or something less than the normal life expectancy of a person. So that's just one of several different reasons why I think we're talking about a relatively short time right at the very end of this age. But then Jesus has this little aside. So in verses 23 through 28, I don't think he's yet talking about his coming as in like the flow of the story, but it's something of a parenthesis. We'll put the outline back up here. So it's, it's number three there under letter C. It's a parenthesis, and basically he's saying, don't be fooled. Jesus' coming will not be missed. So he's going back to the original warning that he gave at the beginning, that during the time that you and I live in, there'll be lots of false messiahs that show up, you know, the Jim Joneses of the world, the David Koresh's of the world. Those, those type of um, frauds will always be with us, right? Our Lord Jesus warned us ahead of time. And it seems like they will also be here during the end. So during the end, there will still be people running around saying, hey, you know, I've seen the Messiah. Come with me. He's in this secret place. And, you know, Jesus gives the, the two places, right? Some people will say he's out in the wilderness. Some people will say he's in a secret room. What those both have in common is that you've got to go find him, right? Because he's arrived in some kind of hidden sense. And Jesus is saying, no, don't be fooled by that. When I come, everybody will see me. He says it will be as obvious as lightning streaking across the sky from one horizon to the other. And then he has that little bit of a cryptic saying there in verse 28. He says also where there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. I think there's two possibilities. So the one I have there in the notes, I say that this may be a reference to the, the final battle when Jesus returns. So he could be thinking here of the battle of Armageddon, and just it's another way of saying, like the lightning metaphor, that his coming will be obvious. The other possibility, and this is kind of a minority position, but I think it's, it's plausible, is that he's saying, you won't have to come find me, I will come find you that you'll be brought to me. So just like birds are brought to a body or to a carcass, we as believers will be gathered or drawn to him, okay? Which is, which is a true statement. I'm just not sure if that's exactly what Jesus is referring to. But either way, the main point of that parenthesis is clear, right? Jesus isn't going to come in some secret way where someone has to go tell us that we have to go somewhere to find him, right? When he comes for us, it'll be obvious. In my view of the end times, it'll, for us, it'll be the rapture, right? That in a moment, we'll be caught up to meet him in the air. And that after a period of at least seven years of, of tribulation and trial on this world, he will right, rightly take back his rule. He will come to the Mount of Olives like was predicted in Zechariah. And that whole complex of events will be very obvious and public, okay? So we as his followers don't need to worry about missing out on his appearing, okay? I think that's what he's after there. So then flipping the page to page 92, after that parenthesis in verses 23 through 28, 
Jesus returns to describing the events that will occur immediately after the Great Tribulation. So at this point, we've reached the long-awaited goal of the story, which Jesus has been telling in this discourse. So just think how long we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew. Probably feels really long to you guys, right? How long we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And how often I've said, you know, the kingdom isn't here yet, right? The kingdom isn't here yet. We've seen the king. We've seen the king's citizens. We've seen the king give previews with his miracles. There's been all kinds of expectation growing, but now Matthew's reached the point of the story and he's saying this is what it's actually going to look like. It's going to start out like a campaign, like a battle. You're going to see this Antichrist. You're going to see this time of distress. It's going to be tough, but it's going to be a short period of time. And then you're going to see the Son of Man. You're going to see Jesus Christ himself returning on the clouds with power and great glory. Again, if you take that first view that I referenced earlier, you have to take this coming of the Son of Man to be his coming in judgment in AD 70. That's how they understand it. So they would say that when uh, Jesus came and destroyed the temple using the Romans during the Jewish war, that was his coming. And I just think it misunderstands what that originally meant in the book of Daniel. It was something bigger and more grand than that. All right. So picking up again, Jesus will return to establish his kingdom. He'll gather the previously exiled and now repentant Israelites from all over the world to enter their restored kingdom. So Zechariah 12 is one of the key passages there. Israel's rejection by God will be finished. So I'm taking that from Daniel 12:7, And her promised return from exile will occur. The restoration of Israel is the event that Matthew's readers have been waiting for since Matthew 1:21 promised that Jesus would save his people from their sins. The morning in verse 30, so look at verse 30. It's going to say, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Another way to, to translate that would be the tribes of the earth. So the, the word that's translated peoples could also be tribes. So I think it could be specifically referring to the tribes of Israel. The mourning there, I think, is again taken from Zechariah 12.10, and it's a result of repentance. So I don't think this is mourning in anguish or regret. I think this is mourning of repentance, that God will actually affect the change of heart that's necessary for the people of Israel to turn back to him and accept Jesus as their Messiah. All right? This morning follows God pouring out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. This prophecy of the eschatological day of the Lord promises in, Daniel, or in Zechariah 12 that God will deliver Jerusalem from a coming Gentile siege, cleanse the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from their sin and impurity, remove idolatry from the land, and cause false prophets to be ashamed of their profession. And it's all on that day. So if you read Zechariah 12 through 14 side by side with what Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, I think they're telling the same story with different details, different words, but it's a prophecy about the same event. So therefore, like Zechariah 14, 
this prophecy predicts a deliverance of Jerusalem, not merely a judgment on Jerusalem, and it sets this deliverance in this context of the same elements seen in other New Exodus texts. And then Jesus is finally going to close out this answer to the first question. So this is all about signs, and he's going to close with a parable, this parable of the fig tree. So let me read verses 32 through 35. It says, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right? So I think here he's using a, a general truth from nature that when they saw certain leaves showing up on a fig tree, they could be certain that spring was right around the corner. That's about where we are right now, right? We're starting to see little signs of spring, and it's getting us excited. And Jesus is saying here, when you see all of these things take place, you'll know that it's either it or he is near. It could be translated either way. He's either referring to the kingdom, and it would be a it is near, or he could be referring to himself, and it could be he is near. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because he and it come together as a package, right? When Jesus comes, the kingdom comes. So either way, you take it. So I don't think he's saying, when you see me, you'll know I'm here. That, that would be kind of redundant. I think he's saying all of the other things that he's talked about leading up to it. So the present age that we live in with its false alarms, the distress that we go through as his followers, the final things that show that the end is here, the Antichrist, the time of distress, all of, that thing, all of those things will take place. We can be certain. And when you see them all take place, you know, notice twice he puts an emphasis on all these things, then you will know that I, I or he or it is near right at the door. Okay? There's three things here that are tightly debated or hotly debated in verse 34. First of all, what, what does generation mean? I, I've tackled that one earlier in the class, all right? So by now, you, you probably know my answer to that. I just think that generation isn't the best way to translate that word because it's lost the meaning in English that it had when Jesus used the equivalent word in his day. At one time in English, generation meant something closer to what Jesus means. It meant like a family or a group of children. But today it means like a slice of people who were all born about the same time, right? Like millennials, Gen X, baby boomers. So he's basically saying this evil family, the evil family that we've seen all the way since chapter 11 that's been opposed to him, that will persecute his prophets that he's going to send after him, they will last until he returns, but when he returns, they'll pass away, okay? So that's my answer to the first question. The generation refers to this evil family of unbelieving Israelites, all right? Question two, I've already kind of hinted at. What does Jesus mean by all these things? Well, I think you could exclude his, his second coming itself, like the, the events of the end. I think you could take that out of the, all these things in verse 33, maybe. But I, I don't think you could do that with verse 34, 
When he says all these things in verse 34, I think it includes, and this is going to sound silly, but all the things that he's been talking about, everything that he's been talking about up to that point. And so it's going to include the final things that take place at the end. And then the last one, I think this is the hardest. What what does Jesus mean that they'll pass away? He could just mean that they cease to exist. That's how some people take it. It could be like a statement of judgment. You know, there's been this evil, unbelieving family that's extended all the way from Sinai to my second coming. And when I finally come, they'll be done away with. They'll pass away. They'll no longer be here. That's how a lot of people, I think, just, just take it. And that's, that's plausible, right? It has an element of truth to it. But I wonder if the key is really to notice that he uses the same expression with heaven and earth. You notice that? So the generation passes away and heaven and earth pass away, and they both seem to both happen when he returns, right? Well, what does it mean that heaven and earth passes away? Do they just cease to exist? Is there just no longer a heaven and an earth? No. It means they're changed into something else, right? They're reborn. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 to his disciples when they were all concerned about what privileges they would get in the future kingdom? He says that the regeneration of all things, or sometimes it's translated the restoration of all things, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, right? He's, he's speaking of a regeneration or a rebirth that will happen to this world. Someday the whole world will be made new, and I think Jesus' point here is actually a, a word of salvation, of hope, that this evil family, this wicked nation, a nation that Jesus was born into, a nation that's opposed him, will be changed into a people who accept him, a people who mourn when they see him, a people who will recognize him as their Messiah. So I think, I think heaven and earth do not cease to exist when they pass away, but are instead made into a new heaven and a new earth. And so I think something similar will also happen to Israel. They will be reborn and restored with the rest of the world at the renewal of all things. Probably of all three of my points there, that's the one I'm least certain about. The first two, I'm, I'm pretty certain that one, it's, it's a little tenuous, but I think that's the best explanation in my mind of what Jesus means there. All right, so we'll stop there, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in two weeks after you've had your break, and uh, we will tackle the parables that answer the question, when will he return? You're welcome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Because that persecution is short, eventually they're going to be able to see Christ return. Like, where are they?